I feel pretty confident in saying this. I think I can safely assume that all of us, no matter our age, no matter what our life has been like, that every single one of us in this room this morning have had some kind of instance in our life where somebody has established a rule or given us some guidelines or boundaries or told us to do something that didn't sit well with us, that we didn't want to do, that we didn't want to participate in. And so we either push back on it, rebel against it, or break that rule outright. Now maybe for some of you, that's a sporadic thing. And you can count the number of times that's happened in your life on one hand. Maybe the rest of you are like me. And you've considered every guideline, boundary, rule, or anything that anyone's ever said to you, contrary to anything that you might have already been planning on doing, you take that as an outright assault and an insult and something that should be challenged. It's a sickness, it's a problem, and it's been a source of constant stress over the course of pretty much my entire life. And when I think back, I can think about, obviously, the big things, right? The big times that I've gotten in a lot of trouble, whether it was in school or with parents or whatever that looks like. I can think of some of the big times, but the things that really stand out to me are a couple small instances of the times when I have felt a need to challenge a rule or an authority or a boundary that just doesn't make sense. The two that come to my mind immediately both have to do with hot objects, and me being older than I should have been for these things to take place. And so just assume I'm not five or six, but I'm old enough to where this story is ridiculous. And so I remember one time I was in the kitchen with my dad, and my parents didn't really drink coffee a whole lot growing up, but for whatever reason, the coffee maker was out this morning, and I was walking close to the counter, and just as a a passing statement, my dad said, hey, be careful around the coffee maker, it's still hot, which translated into my mind as someone saying, hey, you can't touch this, you can't do this, you just have to listen to me and obey what I'm saying, and I thought, I doubt it, I'm going to push back here. And so for no reason at all, I touched the coffee maker, and guess what, it was hot, because guess what, my dad wasn't just trying to rob me of the joy of touching a coffee maker, it was legitimately hot, and he didn't want me to burn myself. Fast forward some unknown, unspecified amount of time, I was in the laundry room, with my mother, who was ironing some clothes. And she said, hey, just be careful, the iron's hot. And again, that trigger in my neck just went off, and I thought, I'll see about that. I'll be the judge and jury of this particular situation, and I'll let you know if the iron is hot. And guess what? It was hot. And guess what? She wasn't just trying to rob me of the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to touch an iron that lived in our home every minute of every day. She just didn't want me to burn my finger. As a side note, I would like you to know that it is very difficult to maintain your composure and not express pain when you burn your finger in front of your parents. But if you are stubborn enough, you can actually do it. Because in both instances, I had to make sure that they didn't know that they were right and I was wrong, even though it was so obvious. And I have to imagine that was so frustrating for them, to have to put up with that on a regular basis. But actually, now I don't have to imagine that. Because what has happened now that I've grown into an adult, I have two of me in small female form that live inside of my house who seem to think that everything that I tell them is just me trying to inhibit their desires and keep them from having the most fun possible, like running into a parking lot. 
And it's maddening because I want them to have fun and a fun life. I just don't want them to burn their finger or smash their face on a rock. And so I feel like these are pretty simple instructions, but they're so difficult for them to follow. And then I also have to deal with then the... uh, (laughs) I don't want to say condemnation, but just the guilt that arises of, oh, that's what it felt like to be my parents. But we naturally seek some sort of freedom that we can take into our own hands. We have a tendency inside of us to resist boundaries, to resist authority, to resist commandments and rules, no matter how good you've been throughout the entirety of your life, all of us run into times where we don't want to follow or abide by the systems or the boundaries or the structures that are set in place, especially God's. Last week, we talked about God being a relational God. As we've been looking slowly through these opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we've seen different characteristics of God come to light, how he reveals himself to us. And at the start of Genesis chapter 2 and at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see that God is a relational God who not only loves himself but loves us has an intimate and passionate relationship with his creation, most importantly us, those who were created in his image. And we even saw that he loves human relationships and has called us to exist together in community. And we see that he is a good father and that he is relational in all the ways that we want, but also all the ways that we need. And so today we're going to look at a side of God's relational characteristics that may at first seem a little less convenient than the fact that he's a God who just loves us and lavishes his grace on us, but that he is also a God who establishes boundaries and sets the standard for truth. And that it's all, yes, for his glory, but also for our good as well. And so let's pick back up in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 16. And this is the word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we don't take those words lightly this morning, that you are our Father and our God, that you are our creator and our sustainer, but that you also love us as a good and perfect and holy Father. God, you do that in the most perfect ways and the ways that we can fully understand and grasp as you just love us and care for us and provide for our needs and do good things for us. But God, you also do that in the way that we need, even though we don't want them, as you set boundaries for us, as you give us commandments, as you teach us how we should live and expect us to walk in those ways and establish truth in our life. And so, Father, as we look at your word today, and as we remember that you are the same from Genesis to Revelation, that you are the same from the first day to the last and beyond, God, help us to be in awe of your character and your nature. Help us to be humbled by the way that you love us. But God, also teach us to be submissive in the places where you call us to follow after you and to live the way that you have designed us and instructed us to live. So, Father God, we ask and pray that you speak to us this morning through your word. Teach us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You'll have to excuse constant water drinking this morning because it feels like I'm constantly on the last leg of what little bit of the voice I have. But we're going to get through it. Lookout Mountain in Georgia, and I guess partly in Tennessee, they like to build themselves, they advertise the view. Obviously, it's Lookout Mountain. It makes a lot of sense that the view would be pretty stunning and awesome. And they tell you that you can see seven different states from Lookout Mountain if you go to this certain point. And so we've been up to the top of Lookout Mountain, and you go to this spot, and sure enough, you can see seven states, I guess. I'm, I'm pretty sure you can. I don't really know because what's weird is when you get up there, it doesn't quite look like a map. There's just a lot of trees and mountains and dirt spots and things that look just like everything else. There's no big, bold black lines or dotted lines like you see on a map to divide up how all the different states should be. And so I guess I see seven states. I'm not really sure. And so I just have to trust that these boundaries and these borders are actually there. And so when you're up there, you're seeing seven different states, seven different sets of boundaries that are there, but also kind of not there all at the same time. And I remember standing up at the top of this mountain thinking, boundaries are weird. That someone created these boundaries and drew out these lines and put all of this into place. But also we understand that boundaries and borders, these are necessary things to help us govern our lives. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see God as creator. We see God as this divine artist and architect shaping the world, forming it and filling it, and then putting his glory into it, creating for himself a temple where he'll be honored and glorified and worshipped. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we're able to see God as father. Now, 
I've been at this father thing for about five years now. I have two little girls. They're awesome and wonderful. And so you get to spend a lot of time loving and caring for these tiny little people and helping them grow into who they're meant to be and to learn. And it's awesome and it's wonderful. But you also spend a lot of your time drawing imaginary boundaries around things that are dangerous and things that could kill them. I feel like sometimes I'm in the Monday night football booth, and, you know, they have that little pin where you can circle things that are going on. And I feel like that's what my life looks like sometimes, where I'm just walking around with my girls saying, nope, don't touch this. It'll kill you. Nope, don't go here. It'll kill you. Nope, don't step off of this. You're probably going to die if you do this. Drawing all of these imaginary borders and barriers around all of these different things to keep them safe. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see God's expression of himself as father. And he begins by lavishing his love on his people. Look at these things that are happening there. You see this world where there's no plants or anything yet growing. And then God dips his hands into the dirt and he forms man out of the ground. And he breathes that life and man becomes a living creature. God breathes his spirit into us and humanity is born. And then it says that God planted a garden in Eden. That God creates this perfect and beautiful habitat for these people to grow and to thrive. And it says that there's every kind of tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Everything that humanity could possibly need is all right here. And it gives God great pleasure to do this for his special part of creation, for the people that would bear his image. And as a good father... God gives the people all they could ever want or need. He lavishes his goodness on us, and he also sets some boundaries. Right there in verse 16 and 17, he says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now it's interesting the way that we often read this passage. Because we read all of this at the beginning, but usually the focus of Genesis chapter 2 is what leads us into Genesis chapter 3. Usually where we put most of our attention, where we spend most of our time focusing in and paying attention to and deciphering are these two verses where God says, you can't eat of this one tree. Here's this one thing that you cannot do. And a lot of times we caricature God as some sort of cosmic get-off-my-lawn guy. That God is constantly drawing all of these barriers, giving us all of these instructions, giving us all of these commandments, and just trying to box us in so that we have very little room to run or very little room to do anything at all. And we often emphasize and really focus in on God as divine rule maker. And he is. And we're going to see that God gives us these boundaries and these instructions for our good and for his glory and for a reason and a purpose. But also I think it's important to pay attention to the first half of this chapter. Think about the ratio of what's taking place here. The amount of cans versus the amount of can'ts. God says you can have every tree in this garden. That there's a tree of every kind here and that its fruit is good for eating and it's good for you and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's all made for you. And you can participate and partake in all of these trees and you can have all of this as much as you want without limit. This is yours to have to the fullest, but there's this one tree that you can't partake from. There's this one tree that's not 
good for you. And we should see here that God has created this world with unbelievable goodness and freedom. So often we can start to think that God is somehow desiring misery for his people. Much like I thought about my parents, that they were just trying to keep me from something real fun so that I wouldn't touch the coffee maker or the iron or how my daughters get mad at me when I tell them they can't run in the parking lot or whatever it is. We start to look at God and say, oh, you just don't want me to have any fun. God just wants to be this incredible taskmaster, just giving us this little space in which we can walk. And there's all of this that other stuff that we want that we want to be a part of, but God is just trying to keep us away from that. But in fact, we find here that God made this world to be enjoyed. That God wants us to enjoy his creation. That God wants us to enjoy the lives that we've been given. That God wants us to enjoy our relationship with him. But we cash that in for legalism. For this idea that we are just supposed to be in slavish, obligated devotion, not doing anything out of joy, but simply because we have to. And we find ourselves, much like the Pharisees during Jesus' time, looking at God's commandments and saying, you know what, those are good, but we could do better. And we add more things, and we add this bubble wrap around those laws. And so we find ourselves constantly in slavery of our own design when God has created us out of love for freedom. And we see that in as early as Genesis chapter 2. But it doesn't stop there. Because we know as Genesis chapter 3 comes along and sin enters into the world and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says that we put ourselves in captivity. That we slap on the chains of sin. But then when Jesus comes in and interrupts our life, when he saves us by his grace through his work on the cross, then we see Jesus reaffirm that freedom. In fact, Jesus himself in John 8, 34 through 36 says, Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul echoes this in Galatians 5, 1, where he says that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. To stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And again, in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18, Paul says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You see, God has designed us to live in freedom, that he wants us to have life the way that he has designed it. And yes, he's given us rules and borders and boundaries through which we can navigate this life, but he has also given us so much room for incredible, beautiful, wonderful freedom. In fact, he wanted that for us so much that he saw us in our own slavery, that we put ourselves in this sin that we shackled ourselves with. And he says, no, I don't want you to stay there. And so he comes and breaks into the 
world. The God who created all things became part of his creation for us. And through Christ and his death and resurrection breaks the chains of all those who have been saved by grace so that we can live in freedom and enjoy the beauty of what God has done for us. And when we start to think about it that way, then we realize that we can start to trust that this God who has given us such love, this God who has given us such freedom, such grace, and such mercy, that when he gives us a commandment, that we can rest assured that it's for his glory and that it is also for our good. Trusting his heart as a good and gracious father. We looked at the fact that Jesus, or that God is a good creator who has created all things through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit as he holds all things together. And that because he is good, everything that he creates and everything that he makes is good. And we see that echoed again here in Genesis chapter 2 as we see a God who is a good father who gives good freedom and also good boundaries. I mean, just look at the boundary that he draws here. He says, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That seems like a pretty good reason to avoid this one tree. He says, you have everything else that you could ever need, but there is this one thing that's not good for you, and so stay away from this and just enjoy everything else that I've given you. But again, we struggle with that. Because we see that and we focus on the thing that we can't do. We start saying, well, why not? I want to do that. That's the thing that I want. Oh, I've got all this stuff. I know you've given me all this freedom. But if you're keeping this from me, then you must be hiding something from me. And we still have trouble trusting God's motivation and God's heart. And so how do we learn to follow God's boundaries? How can we be people who walk in the way that God has called us to walk? Well, first and foremost, we should constantly remember God's heart. We should remember the fact that God didn't need us, but he wanted us. That God lacked nothing, was perfect for all eternity past, and yet desired to create us and desired to bring us into this world. We looked last week at how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That it wasn't just true of these first people in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 that God shaped them and formed them and breathed life. And the psalmist says that we are fearfully, wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's wombs, known more intimately by God than anyone could ever know us. And he loves us even when we fall short, even when we mess up. A God who loved us enough to give everything for us so that we could take back the freedom that we lost. So that we could have again the joy that sin has stolen from our lives. So that we could have a promise for an eternal hope as sons and daughters of God. If that's the kind of good father that we serve, then we can trust that whatever he does, whatever he tells us to do, wherever he tells us to go, however he tells us to live, that it is going to be good. But this means that we have to stay immersed in scripture. That we have to stay countless hours in prayer, that we have to pay attention to seeing God doing good and incredible works in our lives and have that truth reaffirmed daily. We have to spend time meeting together as the church and spending time with other Christians and hearing about how God is moving and how God is working and being reminded constantly how good God is because we are very prone to forget. 
But not only should we remember God's heart, but we should also dwell on God's freedom. It wouldn't make a lot of sense if you go home today and you walk up to the wall in your living room and you just start thinking, this wall is all that separates me from the outside. And start focusing on these walls. And I wish this wall was different. I wish this wall was further away. I wish this wall wasn't here. I wish there was a door here. And starting thinking about all the ways that we could change the wall and completely neglecting the rest of our living space. And yet so much time is spent whining and complaining about the commandments that God has given us. And I think we spend so little time celebrating the freedom that he's bestowed on us the love that he's lavished on us. I wonder what would happen if we spent more time celebrating how much freedom that God has given us and what it means to be saved by God's grace and made new through Christ and the freedom that he's given us to go out and to live life the way that it was designed to live instead of looking negatively at the commandments that he's placed in our lives for our own good. But then we can also follow these commandments knowing that they're good for us. When we remember God's heart, when we remember the freedom that God has given us, then it should put into perspective the commandments that God has given us and why he's done that. It'll help us to realize that God is not giving us arbitrary rules or instructions just because he likes us to not have as much fun as we possibly could, but because he wants us to live in the way in which we were designed to live. I wonder how often we think about God's laws and commandments the way that the psalmist does in Psalm 119, 97 through 104. He says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So often, when I read commandments in Scripture, when I know how God is instructing me to live, my natural reaction is, why? Why? Why can't I just do what I want? Why can't you just leave me alone? Why can't you just be the good God off in the distance? Why do you have to be so up in my business? Why do you care how I live? But the psalmist knows. He says, God, I love your law because it is good for me. It is healthy for me. It keeps me away from doing the things that I shouldn't do so that I can have the life that you've called me to. He says that it gives him understanding that these words are sweet to his taste, sweeter than honey. But the only way we can get to that point is to truly spend time knowing who God is recognizing how God loves and the fact that God loves us more than we love ourselves. He loves us more than anyone else could ever love us. He loves us more than we could understand. 
that God knows more and understands more about this world in which we live and the life that we're supposed to live because he is the one that designed it and created it. And if you mix the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God with the love of God, we absolutely should celebrate the word of God because we know that it is good for us and it leads us to a life of freedom and certainty in Christ and a future hope that is beyond anything we could imagine or understand. God gives us commandments to navigate this life as he leads us to the next. And so we should look at the God who sets boundaries and recognize how wonderful and beautiful and freeing and loving he is. But we also see in this passage that he is a God who establishes truth. I'm in a constant, we'll call it debate, with my brother. My brother says that the metric system is much more functional than the standard system in which we use in our fair country here. He says that it's easier because it's based on tens and you can figure it out and it's nice and round. And so like, he's getting a Ph.D. in algebra, so he thinks he knows everything about math. But the reality is this one that we use is so much better because it has good stories. Listen to this one. So the yard, right? The yard was determined by a king about 800 years ago. And he decided that the standard of measurement was going to be the distance from his nose to his outstretched thumb. The metric system can't give you a story like that. It's just all math and numbers. This is beautiful. It's history. It's a man who said, we need a standard. We need to know how to measure things so that we just can't be out here all willy-nilly talking about yards and everybody means anything else. And so this is going to be a yard from my nose to my thumb, and that just happened to be 36 inches. I meant to measure mine because I wondered how I matched up with a king, but I forgot to because I'm sleepy and I'm sick, and it just hasn't been a very good week. And so we'll just assume that this is a longer span. But that king said, this is going to be the yard from now on. But why did he get to decide that? I guess, because somebody had to, and because he had the authority. There needed to be some sort of system of measurement, and he thought, well, everybody listens to what I say, and so I'm going to set this standard, and it made life easier. Standards are incredibly important. They help us to know what is true and what is right. They help everyone to be on the same page and following the same things. And standards are especially true when it comes to truth. In just a few weeks, we're going to go into a season that we call Holy Week as we remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem for that last week before his crucifixion. And one of the most upsetting passages through that entire narrative is when we see Jesus on trial and we see this back and forth of truth Versus lie. We see Jesus standing before the Roman governor Pilate. And at the same time, we see the disciple Peter standing before the crowds, denying that he knew Christ. And as Jesus stands in front of Pilate, he begins talking about his kingdom and that his kingdom is not of this world, but that his sheep hear his voice and they know that it is truth. And then in one of the most honest moments that we see in that narrative, Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, what is truth? And this is a question that was not new to Pilate. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 when we see 
temptation come into God's good garden. And the temptation of the serpent to the woman begins with a very dangerous question saying, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in this garden? Introducing uncertainty, introducing a lie in the midst of truth. And we find here that the question of truth is as old as language. It's as old as breath itself. And so we have to ask, who gets to decide truth? Is truth relative? Does everybody get their own yard? Well, that would be chaos. And so perhaps it makes the most sense that the one who created everything, the one who formed the world to be as it is, the one who pulled back the sea to draw out dry land, the one who hung the sun and the moon and the stars in their places and keeps the universe spinning by the power of his will. Perhaps he is the one who has the power to establish truth. We could easily look at this question and ask, why? When he says, excuse me, this commandment, when he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we can say, God, why? You created all of this. You got to determine what was right and what was wrong. This commandment was only there because you decided that this should be the commandment given. And I love how Francis Schaeffer talks about this. He says, but God had not made a bad tree. He simply made a tree. And there's nothing intrinsic about this tree that is different in any way from the other trees. Rather, God simply confronted man with a choice. He could have said, don't cross this stream, don't climb this mountain. He is saying, believe me and stand in your place as a creature to his creator and all will be well. This is the place for which I have made you. See, the answer to that question, why, is simply because he's God. And he is the one that establishes truth. He is the one that sets boundaries. They're not arbitrary, but they are his. And sometimes he sets these boundaries, and it's not necessarily for us to know why, but simply to trust that he is a good and gracious God. Remember Job, and one of the most frustrating passages in Scripture, Job has finally had enough with his torment and the fact that his life is seemingly falling apart. And he comes to God and he says, why is this happening? If you just tell me what to do, I'll make whatever changes are necessary. And God's response is not, here's how you need to fix things, or here's why this is happening. His response is, this is who I am. And you just need to trust me in the places that you don't fully understand. God is saying, you do this because I am who I am, and you are who you are. And even as I let those words fall from my lips right now, it just creates a tension inside of me. Because I hated when I would ask my parents why they wanted to do something, and their response was, because I said so. And I hate it when those words fall out of my mouth, even right now talking to my own children. But when it comes to God, it really is that simple. That he knows more than we know. He knows more than we could ever know. 
And so when God decides and deems that something is inappropriate or something is not right or this is where this boundary will go, we should have faith in that and trust in that because he is God. In Romans, Paul says in verse, chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. In 1 Corinthians 1.25, it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When Habakkuk saw the Babylonian armies coming to take his people into captivity, he starts ranting and railing against God, saying, How could you let this happen? This is not who you're supposed to be. This is not how things are supposed to work. And God responds to Habakkuk by saying, Listen, if I told you my plan from the beginning, you wouldn't believe it because you don't have the intellectual capacity to understand or the foresight to see exactly what I'm doing. And so again, we find ourselves in a place where we have to learn of the character of God to recognize his goodness and his wisdom and his strength and his power and to understand that there has to be a standard of truth out there and there's only one capable of setting that into place and it's the one who put the world in motion. We need to learn, as scripture teaches us, to not lean on our own understanding but trust in the wisdom of God because he is good and he always acts for his glory and the good of his people. We need to learn to see God as both creator and father, the sustainer of the universe and also the standard of all truth. And instead of trying to align God with the truth that we want to create or the truth that we want to establish, instead of speaking and identifying our truth, we need to learn what God's truth is and align ourselves with him. Because the reality is, no matter how hard we try, when we establish truth, it's always selfish. It's always going to be me-centered and what works best for me. But God's truth, while it is indeed God-centered, is also for the good of God's world and the good of God's people. And so when God draws a line, we should trust it. When God sets a boundary, we should follow it. When God gives us room to move in freedom, we should take advantage of that and move in that freedom. But when God says, go no further, we should stop and trust that no matter what is going on, no matter what we think or what we seem to understand, God knows far more than we do, and we should follow his standards and trust in his truth. This is a very difficult thing to do. It's much easier to respond to a sermon like last week's, when we're talking about the God who loves us unconditionally. But if he really does love us unconditionally, he's certainly not going to let us live in a way that causes pain or strife or that brings anything worse into this world. And so he has designed his commandments to help us to live the way that we were called and designed to live. And so we have to learn each and every day to use our freedom as servants of Christ. All these passages that deal with Christian liberty and Christian freedom, we're always instructed to do so, not using our freedom foolishly, but using the freedom that we've been given to follow after Christ. Because we know that the Christ who sets us free loves us enough 
to lead us in a way that will honor and glorify God, but that will also be good for us and lead us towards that eternity with Christ. And so it's our responsibility to learn, to trust, and submit daily to the relational God who created us and breathed life into us, who formed us and who knows us intimately from the inside out and who wants better for us than we want for ourselves. But because we're selfish, because, as we're going to see over the next couple weeks, that our sin comes out of idolatry and pride, it's so easy to turn away and forget the good things that God has done for us. And so we need to be daily reminding ourselves through Scripture and through prayer and through Christian community, through paying attention to what God has done in our lives, daily reminding ourselves the goodness of God and how much He loves us so that we are able to freely trust in and submit to the relational God who sets boundaries for his glory and our good and establishes truth so that we can follow after him.